upon another country violates the very principles of liberty and representative government. Authentic freedom means we and our neighbors choose how that freedom is defined. For example, consider the United Kingdom and the United States, two card-carrying liberal democracies. The former has retained its monarchy and recognizes an established church. The latter has an elected president and prohibits the establishment of a state religion. Moreover, Mill rejects the idea of intervention to impose liberty or democracy, writing that, to go to war for an idea, if the war is aggressive, not defensive, is as criminal as to go to war for territory or revenue. He goes on to say that non-intervention is counterproductive in promoting freedom and democracy. Intervention will not do any real good, and the war that accompanies intervention always does harm. It is only through what Mill calls an arduous struggle, or in the extreme a violent revolution, do a people come to define their freedom, and in the process develop the capacity to exercise self-government, obey laws, fight for their country, and pay taxes. In fact, a knapsack regime, one established through foreign armed intervention, is likely to be harmful and often brings about three undesired outcomes. The first is that the knapsack regime will collapse as soon as the interveners leave, since the liberals ruling the regime have not earned political support from the population. The result, then, is another civil war. A second scenario is that the knapsack liberals, given their thin domestic support, turn to despotism in order to hold on to power. The third outcome is that the interveners never leave. They stay in power in order to prop up the knapsack regime, which becomes, in a sense, a client that loses state self-determination. I, along with Camille Strauss-Kahn, a doctoral candidate at Columbia University, evaluated the soundness of Mill's intuitions by looking at historical data. We examined every intervention since 1815, limiting our analysis to overt armed interventions by foreign troops that come between a government and its people. We found that of the 334 interventions, 221 were militarily successful. Of those, 56 led to new or renewed civil war, 68 produced deeper autocracy, and 146 led to imperial rule. These bad outcomes total more than 221 because some unfortunate countries experienced multiple harms. Only 26 interventions, or 12%, produced a free, independent, more rights-respecting or participatory government. The data does corroborate John Stuart Mill's views that non-intervention should be the default norm. A 12% success rate is far too small to warrant optimism about intervention. Indeed, every justifiable intervention needs to address the possibility of one of these three harmful outcomes and seek to avoid them. The Intervention Puzzle The second puzzle is, then, why, if Mill is so committed to non-intervention, he argues that it is sometimes permissible to intervene. Here, Mill offers a number of cases where external humanitarian concerns or national security needs can override the right to self-determination.
or where countries can have their rights to national self-determination disregarded because they are not effective and unified nation-states. Mill, unfortunately and unconvincingly, argues that benign imperialism, a form of paternal authority, is acceptable in India and other countries that he short-sightedly portrayed as incapable of ruling themselves. Mill is more persuasive, however, when he draws readers' attention to national liberation or secessionist movements, in which the oppressed minority makes an arduous struggle against an oppressor that cannot be defeated. He argues that indigenous struggles often need help in lifting the oppressive and often foreign yoke. For example, Britain would have been justified in assisting Hungary break from Austria from 1848 to 49 but Britain chose not to intervene. Even here, Mill's theory is incomplete. National liberation.